You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast. Hello and welcome to the Times Higher Education podcast. I am Sarah Custer coming to you from San Diego, California. Hi, and I'm Eliza Compton coming to you from London, England. (laughs) Um, So (laughs) I am actually... I am recording this from a hotel room in San Diego uh, on the final day of the ASU GSV Summit. Uh, for anybody who knows what that is, it's a big <laughs> meeting uh, with uh, lots of um, edtech companies and, and entrepreneurs talking about the, the future of digital education. So it's it's quite pertinent that Eliza and I, we are coming together to talk to you about social media today. Eliza, are you on Twitter, Facebook, and tell us a little bit about what your personal experience is of, of being on social media? Uh, yes, well, both of those. I've been on Facebook since about 2009, I think. I tend to participate in social media as an observer rather than an active participant, uh, but I'm very fond of Instagram and I also really like YouTube. Mm, interesting. And do you use those? for obviously for personal use, um, but I'm sure you're using them to maybe as a journalist to understand more about what the higher education conversation is around the world and maybe learn a few things. Yes, absolutely. And during COVID, I was glued to Twitter to certain scientists who were Mm -hmm. really keeping on top of um, the virus around the world. Uh, And I found the threads really, really fascinating. Definitely gives you a depth of knowledge that uh, you don't get from reading the newspapers. Mm. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I think social media is obviously has ingrained itself in our lives. And like you, I'm on Twitter and Instagram. I kind of came off Facebook because I found it to just be too much, taking too much of my time and not really giving much back to me. But I think as a journalist, Twitter is, is an essential part of the job and um, it's great to find contacts and understand what people are talking about and, and hear more about the conversation anywhere around the world and get to know news and, uh, as you said, follow scientists and, and learn about the, the latest research or the data on COVID especially. But I don't know, whenever we speak about social media, I, I feel like we have to speak about it in these terms of, of it being a vice or kind of an indulgence or something that's kind of taking you away from perhaps other things that you should be doing. And it doesn't necessarily need to be like that. Um, In a recent op-ed for THE campus, Ron Daniels, the president of Johns Hopkins Universities wrote that universities' responsibility to democracy requires them to reinforce public trust in fact and expertise throughout the world. Without this trust, democracy will continue to wither. And for me, this kind of gets to the heart of social media and and public scholarship and engagement and that need for academics to build that trust with the outside world, outside of their institutions at a time when skepticism of experts, science and and truth is so prevalent. So as much as we might not like it, social media is a big part of this public scholarship responsibility that I think academics have. But there are scholars who are doing it and really getting their psychoms on and loving it. Um, So we asked them to tell us how they got started how they juggle it with other work and any tips they might have for the novice academic communicator. Yeah, so speaking of uh, scholars who are getting their psychoms on, I spoke to Simon Clark, who is an atmospheric scientist who has been active on YouTube since 2010 when he was making video explainers for the admissions process to Oxbridge aimed at students who, like him, had come from the publicly funded education sector. Hmm. 
And he has been evolving his channel over the last 12 or so years to go from these explainers to popular science. And not only that, he really has embraced social media as a way to uh, get his science out there, but also to talk about admissions, mental health, books, um, all sorts of all sorts of things, anything he finds interesting, um, as he says. And so he has a live stream on Twitch. He also has a podcast and he's also gone a bit old school recently and just published a book. Well, Simon, thank you very much for agreeing to speak to us on the THE podcast this morning. Thank you for having me. This is, a, this is an exciting opportunity. Um, people may know your YouTube channel and your new book that has just come out, Firmament, but perhaps you'd like to introduce yourself to us. Uh, sure. So um, I'm Simon and uh, I am a recovering academic is the way I like to think about it. I, I did an undergrad in physics at Oxford and then my PhD at the University of Exeter, where I specialised in stratospheric dynamics. So I was looking at how two different levels of the atmosphere interact with each other, basically. Uh, and after finishing the PhD, I became a full time content creator is a it's probably the, the most accurate term because it's the broadest uh, one, uh, meaning that I make videos, I do live streams, I do a podcast, and uh, recently I've got into the habit of writing books. So it's sort of a, a mix of different uh, media. I, I like to think of myself now as that the umbrella term is I'm a storyteller. I like telling stories that are based in science and can be used to educate and inform people. And was that something that you had been thinking about while you were doing your PhD or was it a career pivot that took shape as you were studying? It's something that happened um, entirely, not accidentally, but it was a very gradual process that just sort of happened very slowly and then all at once. Um, a bit like falling in love uh, in that I started making videos in my undergrad and I'd by the time I'd started my PhD, got the hang of what telling a story in a video is like um and originally that was actually whilst I was at Oxford yeah I went there from a, a state comprehensive school and I was trying to make videos to help kids who are in my position to go to interviews and know what to expect or what student life is going to be like mm -hmm. um and then when I did the PhD I was I sort of was interested by this idea of trying to do videos that were a bit more about the science and the research I was doing and as I did more and more of them I realized that it was something that I was good at and it was something that I could see myself doing and when it came to the end of the PhD I just I didn't anticipate success I didn't think that I was at the point where I would um, immediately be successful with YouTube but I thought I would regret not trying so I, I kind of got the bug and then tried to take off and by by luck or good judgment I was actually able to to make it work full-time. Wow and so you started in 2010 at a time when the social media landscape was a little bit different to how it is now. It seems like there's endless mediums and platforms for communicating with, um, with the wider world. Why did you choose YouTube? Uh, I chose YouTube for two reasons. Firstly, uh, it was what I watched. Um, at that time, I was watching a lot of people who were making video blogs. So uh, there was a, a, a big scene of British bloggers at that time, mm. uh, such as Charlie is So Cool Like and Alex Day and, and people like that. 
And that was what I knew. It was it was the format that I was most literate in, in that it was what I consumed the most. And um, I, I figured that there was a gap in the market for this kind of thing, because when I applied to Oxford, I remember searching for University of Oxford on, on YouTube. And the only thing that came up was from the business school. Uh, it was just how to apply for an MBA, which wasn't really the most useful thing. Um, but I still watched it because I was desperate to get any scrap of information that I could and find out what life would be like when I, when I was there as a student. Um, so I, I made it. I made stuff on YouTube because it was what I was aware of and I was aware there was this gap in the market. But I also did have an awareness that I could do it because I actually went to school with one of those vloggers, with uh, Charlie McDonald, uh, better known as Charlie is so cool like. Um, even though we hadn't spoken, I went to primary school with him, we hadn't spoken for a couple of years. Um, I thought that it would be, you know, it was put that it was possible because, you know, my mate Charlie did it and he's just like me, he's a normal guy. Um, but there wasn't that barrier to entry that you get with other media like film or TV or something where you think as a kid, oh, you know, you have to be a certain kind of person, you have to come from a certain background to do that. With YouTube, the wonderful thing about YouTube back in the day, and to a certain extent still today, is that there is such a low barrier to entry to make the content. Um, and back then, there was a very low barrier to entry to actually potentially being successful. Nowadays, it's so crowded, and there's so many people doing it. And it's so competitive that whilst you, you do hear of the success stories. It's very, very difficult to break out. But mm. then I knew that it was possible for any person to just pick up a camera and if they made something that was engaging for it to be successful and to be seen by people. Mm. Uh, so it, it was that really. It was, it was knowing that it was possible and it was n knowing the format, I guess. Oh, that's interesting. And have you found as you've progressed that your content has had to become more niche to, to achieve the, the cut through the cut through that was perhaps easier when you began? So I think if I were to make my content more niche, it would be more successful. Um, as it stands, I generally, I do think about the, the that meta aspect of the content and how I'm trying to approach stuff. But generally speaking, I make the stuff that I think is worth making without deliberately thinking about what other people are doing. There are some cases where I would design videos to blend in in a certain part of the YouTube ecosystem. Um, but for the most part, I just keep trying, well, the advice you're given when you're writing anything is to write stuff and make stuff that you would find interesting which is actually, when you're talking about science, quite bad advice because not everybody has an undergrad and a PhD. Uh, <laughs> so if you're trying to reach a general audience, you probably should be a bit more aware of this, this meta side. But it's served me well enough so far to just make the stuff that I think is worth making that I'd be interested in. So that's interesting advice. If somebody was coming to you now to say, I really want to start a Psycom YouTube channel, what, um, how would you tailor that advice to beginning um, in 2022? I mean, the most important thing when you're beginning any kind of creative media for the first time is to just make stuff. The, 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 the thing that holds people back more than anything else is thinking, well, if I make something, it's going to be bad. And so I'm not going to try making anything. And, and that's fine. Like everybody, the, the toughest advice I was given when I was starting out was you will make a hundred bad videos but you have to make those hundred bad videos before you can make the first good one. It's almost like um, there's an artist saying that you have a million bad drawings in your pencil and it's your job as an artist to push them out. <laughs> um, and I feel that with, if you were to start, if somebody wanted to, to start making videos, the most important thing is just to start doing it and, you know, nuts to the fact that it's going to be bad to begin with because 
of course it's going to be bad to begin with but just start and you don't have to do the same project forever you can have a, a project that you work on and work on and then maybe a year down the line you think actually i've had an idea and now i built up this tool set and i'm going to attack this you know from the ground up but with this new knowledge mm-hmm. and in, in that case if you do have that ability um that those technical skills then it's a question of having a very clear pitch it's having something that you can describe to somebody in you know, the classic elevator pitch of you know 30 seconds what is this idea about and how, how easily can you explain it and mm-hmm. making something that somebody will watch and will enjoy it hopefully and then say to their friends oh i just watched this video on such and such it's something that's very easy to describe that is how these things organically share and grow and they're shared in group chats with a little you know if you can be shared with a couple of words and people get it that's yes. when you know you're onto something that is going to be successful. But, the, you know, that is sort of further down the line. If people want to start doing this stuff, don't think about starting it. Just start it and worry about all the other stuff further down the line. So just start. That makes it sound quite easy. But <laughs> there's a lot of different uh, skill sets that go into putting together your putting together any YouTube channel. So You've got your technical skills of putting together um, scripting and, and shooting a video and then, and then editing it. Um, and then you've got a time management uh, factor with, uh, with the requ- time required that takes to put all these things together. Um, what would you say to somebody who said that they just didn't have, the, didn't have either the skill set or the time to, to start a channel? So from the time management perspective, this is something that I, and funnily enough, quite a lot of YouTubers share this kind of hobby almost. Um, We all use the same software to keep track of our time, which I hope I'm allowed to say. Uh, It's called Notion, um, which is free software. If you're a company, you have to pay for it. Um, But it's it's basically like a completely customizable... um, it's almost like having a completely customizable internet with pages that you can interlink between its each other. And what I do is have a, a whole database of these are the video projects that I'm going to work on. And it allows me to keep track for each video to have the script in there. It can, it can keep track of what stage of the editing process we're at. Has it been written? Has it been researched? Um, and then on a weekly basis, I have a to-do list that is also generated every week. And for every day, there'll be certain tasks, some, some of which will be the same every week, like practice the piano um, or post a video on Friday, something like that. But then at the start of each week, I will go in and add tasks and have a week long perspective, sorry, week long objectives um, in three categories for for work, personal life and for hobbies. And then basically just allocate those to days. And then it's a question of every day you wake up, you know what's expected of you and you just do it. Um, And you, you can really go down the rabbit hole. Of, of, of doing this you know there are entire youtube channels that are just dedicated to how can i get better at notion and how can i use this most efficiently um and you know and, and adopting this i adopted this a couple of years ago now and it absolutely revolutionized the way that i was able to make stuff and to be honest it revolutionized the way that i felt about um about my life in general because i felt for especially post uni when you leave that really rigid structure I was a little bit listless and I was kind of sort of drifting and I didn't quite know was I meeting my objectives what are my objectives anyway Um, and actually having something week by week and I also do it year by year and month by month that allows you to keep track of where you are and what you're doing um, really anchors you and it means that you get so much more done Mm. so 
so that's what that, I always recommend that. And I, I say this in every, whenever I go to universities, I'm imploring students to do it because it would make students' lives so much easier if you kept, if you sort of kept track of your time using it as well. And it um, sounds like strangely YouTube has given you back a skill set. Yeah, and definitely. As well as you needing one to interact with it. Well, it gave me the skill set and it also has given me a, a the connection to people who make these videos. I'm friends with some of these people who... Um, you know, YouTube created the problem of me needing to manage my time. And then it provided the solution in the form of both people and expertise and the software. Uh -huh. um, and also, and, and on the point of technical expertise, to return to your question, um, mm. YouTube is another fantastic source for that. I mean, uh, almost everything that I know about filmmaking and editing has been learned through examples on YouTube and then just getting my hands dirty and doing it. Fundamentally, there is, there is there is no better way of learning than just getting your hands dirty and doing something and trying out in After Effects or in, in Premiere or whatever you're using. Um, but all of the knowledge and the ideas to do these things originally came from watching other people's stuff. Mm. Um, in some cases, watching a video and thinking, how have they done that? And then actually trying to reverse engineering or watching people who have uploaded tutorials. And there's this amazing ecosystem of people just making, in some cases, minute long videos of you want to do this thing on Premiere. Cool. It's this. And mm. I, it's, it's actually very similar to the process of how I learned how to code um, for the PhD in that you have a task and you don't know where to start step one. So you Google or put into YouTube how you do this one thing. And then once you learn how to do that, you run into another problem a couple of lines down and then you're like, okay, right, how do I do this? And at every step you'll run into a tutorial that will help you out. And then you just accumulate this knowledge over time. Mm. And so even if people are thinking of the videos they want to make and like, I don't know how to do this kind of effect or how to how to mesh together the music and the, and the sound effects and the audio of me talking, just break it down into, into these problems and look up how to do each step. And once you've done it once, it'll get easier the second time. And after the third or fourth or fifth time, you'll be a natural. And it's mm. just that slow accumulation of knowledge. And it's all out there. It's, it's something that you used to have to go to a film school to pay to do. And there are paid options to do now. But fundamentally, you can get all this stuff for free. And that is a miracle. It's really amazing, isn't it? The revolution in uh, communication. Do you think there's something about science communication that's particularly well suited to YouTube? You were talking about the, the fact that you can watch people doing something and learn from that yeah there is for sure but because like any form of social media there it's the immediacy is the key thing um and there is a real problem in my area from coming from atmospheric physics something that is very apparent in people talking about climate change denial is that it takes a day or an hour for somebody to produce an article with a spurious claim about climate change that gets shared across the internet. And it then takes six months for a scientific paper to be written and reviewed three times and published, refuting that claim, by which time everyone's moved on from it anyway. With social media, you can actually have a voice as somebody who is trained technically um, to refute these ideas. There is the argument that actually by engaging with it, you're just adding fuel to the fire and you're giving them a, a platform to work with, which is a separate discussion. But that immediacy, the ease of creation and how easily it is shared broadly and how you get instantaneous feedback from people. You get people writing in, in YouTube comments and you can reply to them and you can see where you hit the mark and where you didn't hit the mark. And that's super instructive going forwards. So in a way that if you're a scientist and you're writing a paper and you get um, you know, you, comments from your three reviewers that takes how many weeks to come back to you and you improve 
then on the time scale of weeks and months. Mm -hmm. If you're making videos regularly, you can improve on the time scale of hours as you make something, see what people think, see what you did well and what to improve for next time. And it's actually why my favorite form of media creation at the moment is actually live streaming on Twitch um, because it's that next level of immediacy. If I can say something and yes, there's a 10 second stream delay, but I can basically say something and immediately know if people know what I'm talking about or not. Um, and I love doing Psycom on Twitch because it, there's, there's a variety of reasons, one of which is the, the instantaneous feedback, but there's also this sense of it's a casual format. YouTube has almost become formalized in that it's a place where people can go and they, you know, I know there's high quality content on this website and I'm going to sit down and enjoy this kind of high modern pop sci culture whereas on twitch there's none of that expectation people just log in to watch people play video games or chat and it means you can have these conversations with people in a very casual way almost while their guard is down mm. um and really effectively engage with an audience that can be really quite underserved by other methods of psycom so you know over the past couple of years i've been doing some programming streams where i've been coding up a basic climate model in python recently i've been playing dungeons and dragons in a, in a campaign called the rp geeks with friends who are all science communicators and then we talk about the science that we run into in the episode um in our in our sci-fi adventure um and that's a form of psycom that just couldn't really exist on another platform because you wouldn't be able to say something and give an explanation for an encounter that's just happened and then get that immediate feedback of several people in the chat saying oh that's interesting or oh i don't understand mm. um and, and it allows you to hone in really closely on what your audience is hoping to get from the experience of watching and if you're living up to that expectation or not just for people who don't know aren't familiar with twitch is it all live streaming so yeah, Twitch is, is built around live streaming. Um, if you like, you can think of it as a live version of YouTube, but people can watch content after uh, it's been live streamed. If you're a, a certain size of channel, you get what's called a video on demand. But for the most part, yeah, if you're, if you're watching Twitch, you're watching somebody who somewhere on the planet is actually doing something at that moment. And you get to see typically what they're doing in a video game, but it can be other stuff like Dungeons and Dragons. Hmm. And what are the pros and cons either on YouTube or on Twitch of engaging with your comment with common comment makers? So the pros are that you get to tailor the content. You, you, you have a learning objective in mind if you're thinking about it sort of strategically um, and you can assess how well you're hitting that mark. Is your audience actually reaching that objective or not? And so if there's something you've said that isn't clear, you can immediately clear it up. The, the negatives are manyfold. Uh, so, uh, I mean, an immediate negative, on, and this is on Twitch specifically, is that it's actually very easy to get sidetracked. And I'm somebody who does this. I go down rabbit holes of somebody asks a question about the explanation, then I go on to answer their question, which leads to another question, and you just divert massively from what you intended to do. On YouTube, there is this issue, and especially if you have a channel that's got quite a large following like mine, that if you reply to a comment, you are bumping up its visibility. You are basically, because of how YouTube ranks the comments below his videos, if the content creator is engaged with something, it goes higher up. And if you have a video that has a million views, the comment section also has a million views. And so those top few comments are actually quite crucial in setting a tone and what is acceptable and not acceptable in the discussion. So when I've done climate change related content, I've done many videos on this, I'm extremely careful about picking the comments that I reply to and I engage with and which ones I don't because 
unless there is somebody who very clearly has just a fundamental misunderstanding and genuinely wants to improve their knowledge, and unless you're in that very specific case, somebody who leaves a negative comment is doing so as a bad faith actor. And by engaging with them, you're not going to see a positive outcome. In fact, you're going to see a, a negative outcome in that more people see their flawed argument or see that their negative, you, you, their assertions that just have, have no proof. Um, and it's something that is very specific to, to, to climate, but there is also this broader point on YouTube about as a creator, it, it's almost like you're sort of reaching down and plucking a comment and saying to other people, quick, you know, look at this. Isn't this, this is a fun comment. And doing, you have to do that in a manner that says, thank you for being constructive or, you know, I, I see your criticism, it is valid and I want to do better next time, that kind of thing. Or you, you take the approach of somebody says something funny and you actually just want to say their joke, but louder um, you know, to the class, uh, which you know, is, is sort of a privilege that I get to do on so, some of my videos. <laughs> <laughs> so atmospheric physics is your specialty, your special field, but it is also a, uh, a particularly sensitive topic at the moment with the weather, the discussions about changing weather patterns, climate uh, change, these kinds of things. Was this a consideration when you were starting your channel? Have you... Um, has the topical nature of climate change been a big um, driver in the types of content that you decide to do? So originally the channel was very much a, a social justice kind of channel. It was, I'm from this background, not enough people from my background go to Oxbridge because they believe these things which aren't true. Let's, dis let's disperse those myths and show people what it's like. But relatively early on in the whole history of the channel, um, I did videos that covered climate change if not directly then obliquely so i actually i did a, a video as part of a something called the project for awesome which is a charity event every year uh raising awareness for a charity called durrell um which is a charity that basically is trying to stop species from going extinct um and obviously a, a huge part of that is the the threat of climate change i think that's probably the earliest mention which i think would have been in about 2012 or 2013 um and then since then it's something that's doing the PhD, you're always aware of. I didn't directly work in climate science, but it's mm. inescapable. It's, it's every single part of, of atmospheric science. There's always the what about climate change question. Um, and so that crept in more and more as I started to talk about the research I was doing and started being, and also started being asked about climate because you know you're an atmosphere person i have a question about climate can you answer this for me and normally the answer is yes um mm. and so i just ended up talking about it and became known as somebody who made this kind of content and there's a certain tipping point when i realized that i am somebody who is qualified to talk about the subject and you know i would rather somebody who knows what they're talking about is answering these questions than someone who isn't and mm. I feel I felt a responsibility to keep talking about it um, because otherwise I'd be somebody with this expertise who is just sort of content to to sit on it and let the the noise and the, the chaos and the drama of the rest of YouTube talking about climate um, just be unchallenged and I felt a moral responsibility to finding myself in the position where I'd sort of dip my toes in the water to kind of take the plunge and say, I think it's worth actually really concentrating on this a lot more. So it's something that, again, sort of happened relatively slowly. And then midway through the PhD, it really came in into its own as this is now something that I think this channel needs to be about. Mm. And who is your audience? 
very good question. I, I question that myself frequently. Um, <laughs> so I, I think on average, they are male. They are typically of sort of age 16 to 30 is the main demographic. So people who are at high school or university in undergrad or, or postgrad. Um, and that's something that has remained relatively consistent in the whole time that I've made videos. I think there is this tendency for as creators to, as, they, as creators get older, they make content for themselves. And so the nature of their content skews a little bit older. Whereas I seem to have found a balance of this is the level I want to operate at. It's, a, it's this level of that little bit beyond what you probably get elsewhere in, in terms of, of popular reporting, but below academic reporting like nature or, or science or what have you. But often not by too much. Uh, actually but yeah it, it's generally um it's generally what i used to be whilst i was at university male and probably and studying an undergrad or phd and also largely very western focused though there is every now and again i look at the analytics because google's fantastic at, at giving you this back-end stuff and there's there's surprising concentrations of viewers in places like india um, mm. or singapore but for the most part it is very very western focused mm. and with a busy youtube channel and a podcast and Twitch, you decided that you would write a book because yeah. <laughs> you didn't have enough to do and there was a few hours or minutes in the day that weren't used. Tell us tell us about the genesis of Firmament. So I um, wanted to be an author for a very long time. Uh, I remember writing in primary school and sort of doing serialised fiction that I'd read out to the class, whether they liked it or not. Uh, <laughs> And uh, I, I basically, I grew up reading a lot of these nonfiction books and they had a huge influence on me. I, I actually rediscovered A Brief History of Time uh, a couple of years ago and reread it because I'd forgotten that I read it when I was about 10. And obviously I was too, really too young to read that book, but it had this impact on me where I was like, it, it instilled this idea of, of physics as being the thing I wanted to study in my head. And then since then, you know, I my life has definitely been, influenced by people like Bill Bryson writing a brief history of almost everything or uh, more recently an example would be The Emperor of All Maladies uh, a biography of cancer that is one of these books that you think kind of re makes you reevaluate what you're doing and how you're doing it and um, so, so basically I, I always had this relationship with nonfiction. I, I knew that I wanted to write something at some point and um, I actually I'm astounded this worked. I played a really long game in that I started making videos about books because I am, you know, unabashedly a big book nerd. I love reading. Um, Your book videos and, are great. They're really oh, interesting. You. Yeah. And, and they've evolved over the years, for sure. Like, I think I've got better at, at talking about books. But, I mean, originally it was just, here's, like, my, I think I think the first one I might have done was just, here's my favourite books. And then it was, here's my favourite books that you should read about physics, which ended up being a very popular video. And then it was, here's what you should read about climate. And then it turned into, here's what I'm reading at the moment and what I've liked in the past couple of months and what I've not. And it became known quite deliberately as somebody who made content around books and was associated with it and clear, well, apparently knew what they were talking about. And I did this for several years. And then a publisher contacted me and asked if I would like to write one. Um, and that was Hodder and Stoughton. And it eventually became Firmament. And at that point, because I'd been playing this sort of long pitch, if you like, of building myself up as a book person, um, I had the concept almost exactly what I ended, ended up writing, uh, ready to go. So I could go into this meeting and sort of pitch pitch this idea to, to the editor, Ian, and um, it sort of just took off from there. <laughs> and it's been really well received. Were you, um, what am I 
need to frame this question. You talked about your audience being quite young and male for the YouTube channel, um, but they don't are they the, the people who you're also talking to with the book, or are you thinking that these are two different types of audiences? So I think the book has quite a broad appeal in that I my brief for it was I wanted to write what I called a personal statement book. As in, when you're applying to university in the UK, you submit your, your document of your personal statement that says why you're interested in the subject. And everybody always puts, I read this book and it made me interested in the subject. And I felt like there wasn't a book like that actually about the atmosphere. There's plenty that have been written about weather and plenty that have been written about climate change. But the actual physical system, which is what I find most interesting, is it, it's just missing. Um, and I felt like if I'd read this book at the age of, say, 16 17 it would have made me want to specialize into atmospheric stuff much sooner mm. so I, I wrote it with that younger audience in mind but mm-hmm. also with the kind of broad non-fiction reading audience so it's it's not a book that, that talks down to you it is a book that is not technical but accessible which is quite a tough line to tread actually it's the line that I'm normally try to tread in my videos so it's a similar sort of tone but a little bit more formal because it's a book and they wouldn't let me put memes in it. Um, Popular science is a tough tightrope, I think, to get complicated really ideas across in a way that's easy to understand. So people like Paul Davies do it uh, really well. Um, but I, it's, it's a, yeah, it's an enviable skill. And what's interesting is actually that in the process of learning how to write it, because I, I wrote it and then at the point of submitting the, the draft to the publisher, so you go back and read the earlier chapters and you think, oh, God, I wrote this. This is awful. And you, you found your style over the time. But what, what I found was most instructive was actually reading nonfiction and learning what I didn't like. So there are plenty of books that I would pick up and just immediately go, no, this is I, I know what they've done that I don't like here. So I need to need to not do that. Whereas if you read something like Sapiens or uh, Emperor of All Maladies, you just you're you're kind of like, I know this is great, but I can't put my finger on why it just works. Whereas mm. to read something where um, obviously I'm not going to name names because I just think it's a bit mean, but to, to read a book where, uh, to give one example, the chapters were just a couple of pages each and they were they were really bite-sized. I found that maddening. And I knew that I that, that was like, no, my chapters are going to be about 20 pages each. I want them to be that length where you can sort of get into them, go on a bit of a journey and then come out. And it's an appropriate amount to read in that session that you read before bed. Mm. Um, uh, but Or also being a bit too jovial. There are several popular science books that I find maddening because the author's a little bit too chummy with you. It's like somebody you've met at a wedding for the first time and they suddenly think they're your best friend. Um, you know, it, 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 it's it's the stuff that you that irks you and stands out to you that I think is very instructive in terms of actually how to strike that balance correctly. Mm. And Looking back on it, I think I did a pretty good job. I think if I was to write another one, I'd probably do better in the future. But, you know, I'll give myself a little bit of breathing room before I try and do that. That's the the next project. Do you think perhaps that the work that you've done with YouTube gave you a bit of insight into how to bridge that science bubble between a a place of extreme expertise and huge amounts of detail and a more general audience. Definitely, yeah. It's it's the process of writing the book was almost as if you were writing ten YouTube videos that were just happened to be really quite long. Um, I think that fun, fundamentally, education and nonfiction in general is is storytelling. It's exactly the same set of techniques as you would in write that you deploy 
is if you're writing a story, if you're producing fiction. Mm. And I think that is independent of medium, whether you're doing it as a, a lecture, if you're doing it on YouTube, if you're doing it in a book. And the lessons that I learned in especially structure in terms of getting the arc of a whole work, which on YouTube is the whole video, but on in, in, a, in a book is chapter by chapter and then also the, the entire volume. Um, it, the, the, the lessons that I learned on YouTube are fundamental to how I approach the book. Um, there are more similarities than there are differences, I think, in, make, in producing the videos and, and producing the book. A lot of your videos have a great sense of fun, I think. Did you find that you were infusing some of that into the book as well? To a certain extent, yes. And it was something that I actually paired back as I went along. I think it, it, it somewhat paradoxically, early on in the project, I was writing more formally, um, trying to emulate some of the more formal books. The, the one that really stuck in my head was um, Infinitesimal by Amit Alexander, which was a big influence on the project. And I was like, you know, I'm going to write a book like this. But at the same time, I was also sort of putting in the kind of stuff that I would put in a YouTube video and putting in sort of dad jokes and things that were relevant, but were into, aimed at lightening the mood. And eventually, I think, as the writing process went on, those two sides coalesced somewhere in the middle definitely still on the more formal side and there are still a couple of terrible dad jokes in the book but um it, it's something that i i ended up on having a, a slightly distinct voice and a slightly distinct style to the youtube videos that you know just organically happened mm. so on the subject of book writing or to use that as a metaphor, I guess. What is the what is the next chapter? Oh blimey! <laughs> um, I mean, I'm I've said to, to to my I have a fiance. We're getting married this year, and oh, like congratulations! Like, this, is, this is like our annus mirabilis. Hopefully, this is the year when like everything happens because we've got the book. The book is out, and that's that's like check one. The next thing is we're getting married. We're buying a house this year. Um, I've just taken on a full-time employee um, to help me with the editing on the YouTube channel. Um, and there's a big, I, I try to do one big um, physical challenge for charity every year. Last year it was running a half marathon for the Cystic Fibrosis Trust. This year I'm doing something different that is still under wraps, but I've been training for a long time for that. So this is there's this a year when there's all these big milestones. And at the moment, I'm my objective is survive 2022, get all of those things done, and then I'll worry about the next big project in the following year. I'm, I'm putting down like, if I were to do another book, I've had a couple of ideas that are very tentative, so I don't really want to say them out loud, but I'm sort of in the process of, if I notice something whilst researching a video or just, you know, in general research, I'll just be like, oh, I'll make a quick note of that and, you know, start collating sources. Um, so potentially there'd be another book coming. And and if, if I was off, offered the opportunity and if the project was interesting to the publisher, I think I would do it because it, it was a very positive experience. I enjoyed doing it. And I've learned, I, I, I learned enough to know that I would do a much better job the second time around. Um, oh, well, publishers, I feel listening. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you have built a very varied quilt um, of psych in the in the psychom um, field. How would you how would you give advice to somebody who wanted to get into science communication? It's quite a large, broad, vague aspiration. Is there a tactic that you would suggest? Um, using so I, I actually funny you should ask that question because I just did a video 
last week, as of the time of recording, um, about Psycom and how I approach it. And I think that it's basically a three-step process. I think if you if you say to yourself, this is a field that I want to engage with, that's something that I know is important, I want to do my bit. I think you basically have to ask yourself, firstly, what is your learning objective? As in, how do you want your audience's awareness of science, understanding, opinion of it? How do you want that to have changed by the time they're finished with whatever it is you produce? You then have to ask yourself, who specifically are you trying to reach? And there's this concept of science capital of people who are low science capital are not engaged with science, basically. They're, they may not have gone to university. They probably just like, I was going to say watching normal things. To me, they're not normal, but you know, watching watching TV and, and going to the football on the weekends or whatever. Um, Whereas a high science capital individual is somebody who maybe has a PhD and, and watches YouTube videos about science or whatever. And there's a whole spectrum of SciComm to be done there. And a lot of it is tailored towards the high, sci high science capital end. There is a huge swath of projects that could be aimed at a more general audience and I think have a lot of value. And it's impossible to say, oh, I want a general audience. A general audience doesn't exist. You have to be very specific in terms of who you're reaching. So once you have that idea of who you're reaching and what you want to accomplish, those two together should then tell you, or at least, you know, give you some idea of what formats to use. And that's the third thing to pick is to pick the, whether it's going to be, if you're really ambitious, film or TV or book or YouTube or podcast or whatever it is. And then the style that you use within that format to maximize the probability of your audience reaching your objective. And it's one of these things that sort of makes sense but it is very abstract and it's actually kind of difficult to put into practice but ask yourself what specifically you're trying to do and never say i you know i just want to reach the general audience or i just want to put people into science you've you've got to be specific in terms of what you're trying to accomplish and once you have all of those answers to those three questions this path forward kind of just falls into place and mm. you know what the next steps are but it's actually sitting down and it's, I suppose it's strategizing. It's having a clear idea of what you're trying to accomplish that answers all the other questions for you. That is really interesting. And as a final question, what is the thing that you have found the most enriching about doing the YouTube and all the other things perhaps that have come out of that? That's a tough question because so much of it is... It's a job that I find fun. I, I have a lot of fun making the content. I have a lot of fun engaging with the community. Um, I think I, I get emails relatively regularly from people who are, are sort of saying, you know, or, or messages on Discord or Twitter or whatever, saying, you know, thank you for getting me interested in the subject. I'm now going to do my degree or my PhD in this field. That's fantastic. And, and it's nice to know that because ultimately that was one of the objectives with the PhD vlog series and sort of carrying on ever since really was getting people, uh, making people aware of the aspects of science that is atmospheric physics and sort of dynamics and making them think that, oh, this is something that I could actually do. There's some answer questions here. I'm curious. Um, the other thing which I've done alongside it is uh, using the same platform and, and, and YouTube in particular to raise awareness of topics of mental health, because that's something mm -hmm. that I have struggled with for, for quite a while. And I've had a, quite a long and storied journey in my mental health. And I have been making videos pretty much since I started doing the PhD on the services that are available and 
this has been my experience and this is what I did and this is what helped. And mm-hmm. to get an email from somebody who has watched those and says, has said thank you because they've they've gotten help or they've turned, you know, they've recognized they have a problem at least. Those are the emails that I I, I really cherish. And those are the things that are really fulfilling. Um, it, it, in general, using the platform to try and do some form of good. And that can be scientific good, but it's most personal to me when it's that sort of mental health good and to hear those stories that's the most fulfilling thing yeah i bet that's fantastic thank you so much for your time to finish off can you tell people where people can find you so uh online you can find me um if you search simon clark on youtube i'll be the first thing uh on twitch i'm dr simon clark because i hate brand consistency uh and then on uh, twitter and instagram i'm uh, at simon Oxfiz, which is oxf i don't know i put the f in there i pick you know i picked that username in a panic because i had to sign up for a youtube channel at oxford to upload my first video and i just thought what should the username be right i'm called simon i'm at oxford so oxf and then i'm doing physics so phys great no one will get that wrong ever and i never need to change this and now i'm stuck with the f in the middle <laughs> so <laughs> that's where maybe that's a me. good piece of advice is when you're setting up your channel make sure that you have a searchable url <laughs> absolutely learn from my mistakes <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much for your time simon we've really i've really enjoyed speaking to you and and I wish you well for the, the rest of the book launch and uh, for everything that comes next. Thank you. So I really enjoyed speaking to Simon. I was particularly interested in our conversation about how he chooses his subjects and how he uses humour as well to make the science more engaging and easier to understand and easier to follow and also I was really impressed by his ability to take on a really broad range of topics so he does really fantastic um, YouTube videos about books but also touches on mental health and social engagement which I find to be uh, interesting and a really good use of the platform. Hmm. Yeah. And I like that his advice was to, to just try it. Just don't be afraid of failing at it. Don't be afraid of getting it wrong, that just try it. And of course, your first few episodes or videos that you put up, yes, they're going to improve. There's going to be loads of room for improvement, but you're never going to get to the phase of improvement until you take that first step and just try it and put your work out there and then develop as you go along. So hopefully some encouraging words from from someone who's successfully done this for a number of years. We have some more encouraging words. We asked Christina Zdenek at the University of Queensland in Australia to give us her three tips about how to communicate your research with the wider world. Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Christina Zdenek, a postdoc and lab manager of the Venom Evolution Lab at the University of Queensland. I've been communicating my research about things like parrot vocalization and snake behavior for 15 years. And here are my three top tips of how you can do the same with your research, regardless of what field you're in. Number one, get familiar with other successful SciComm. So consume articles and podcasts from places like The Conversation, The Science Show, and Science Versus. This will give you an idea of what works because not all important science is media worthy. 
and it'll provide a good model into successful SciComm. Number two, connect with your audience. The age-old saying of know your audience is always important. So think about this when you're writing your piece or your script. Keep in mind that people have endless options of what to give their attention to every day for education and entertainment. So you've really got to hook them in and connect with them. This means leaving jargon at the door and communicating simply and with vivid language. I always like to think of the hook as answering the questions, who cares and why now? So putting the interesting bits at the start, like your findings, and then the context or details later on. Number three, get good visuals. Humans are visual creatures. We respond to color, movement, and human faces. So think about how to get good images and short video clips when you're doing something interesting about your science and capture that. Think about lighting, like don't have the sun behind your subject. You want the subject facing the sun. Don't have a tree seemingly growing from their head in 2D space. So try to silhouette the subject for clear viewing because you got to remember that most people will view this image on a small screen the size of their palm, not on a computer screen where you might be editing it or definitely probably not a television screen. I like gathering various options for the producers to choose from because really they're the experts and giving them choice enables better outcomes. And unless you're videoing exclusively for TikTok, video in landscape, not portrait. Cheers. That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for joining us, Eliza. Nice chatting with you from across a continent. Yes, absolutely. Making the most of modern scientific communication. <laughs> <laughs> Putting it into practice. And of exactly. course, there, there are lots more resources on timeshighereducation.com forward slash campus uh, from your colleagues around the world on this very topic of how to use social media to communicate your research with the world. So please do go check it out. And of course, if you have any questions or suggestions for the podcast, please do get in touch. Sarah.Custer at timeshighereducation.com. See you next time. See you next time. You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast.